0: We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, if you'll make your way there, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Last week we talked about sex in marriage. Uh, I'm thrilled to tell you today we're not going to talk about that. No caveats. If you brought your kids, they're welcome to stay. Thank you, Jesus, for that. Last week was sex in marriage. This week we're going to talk about the sanctity of the marriage. Uh, sanctity of the marriage. As some of you still making your way there, just to uh, tell you a brief story, a man went to see a wizard, as the story is told, and uh, he went to see him to reverse a 40-year-old curse. And uh, and so the wizard said to him, you know, I can reverse the curse, but in order for me to do that, I need to know the exact words of the curse that was placed on you. And the guy said, that's no problem, those seven words are burned into my mind. The guy said, I now pronounce you husband and wife. Yeah. Statistically, nine out of ten people, as we discussed last week, uh, nine out of ten Americans will marry. Uh, And considering uh, that God created marriage and commanded that we should be fruitful and multiply, that's a good thing. But... Unfortunately, roughly half of those marriages will end in divorce, and the majority of those who divorce will ultimately remarry, and of those who remarry after divorce, fully two-thirds of them will experience a divorce in their future. Uh, my grandfather is in that category. My grandfather was married 10 times. Yeah, no, 10, no kidding, he loved my grandmother so much he married her twice, so 10 times to nine different women. Now, my father thankfully broke that uh, legacy, uh, he's been married to my mom for 53 years, uh, I'm working to break that legacy, I've been married to my wife going on 27 years now, uh, and so we did not thankfully follow in his footsteps, But uh, but... There are a great many people who do. Now, what do these statistics tell us when we, when we consider the horrible statistics about marriage? Well, they tell us a lot of things, but one of the main things that they tell us is that the problem is in here. It's not out there. The problem is inside us. You see, when we marry, we think, well, I married the wrong person, and you're the problem. And so what we do then is we get out of that marriage, and we go and we find another person to, to get married to, and then we realize, well, they're not the right person either, right? They're, they're a problem as well, which should indicate us that, to us that maybe there's something wrong with us, right? I mean, you know, if I keep going through all the wrong people, maybe I'm the wrong person, right? And, you know, if the only variable between all of my multiple broken relationships is me, then maybe I'm the problem, right? And... This issue of divorce is centered all around that. It's centered all around this issue that we just can't seem to understand that the problem is in here. It's not out there. The issue of divorce is nothing new. It's, it was a problem in Paul's day here in, in, uh, in, in uh, Corinth. It was a problem in Jesus' day in the in the city of Jerusalem three decades before that. Uh, and it was a problem in Moses' day centuries uh, before that. And, uh, indeed the Bible has a lot to say about marriage and a lot to say about divorces and, and, um, both the old Testament and the new Testament, uh, have, have many things to say. And, and we're going to be considering many of these verses today. And we start right here where we left off first Corinthians chapter seven, we left off in verse 10. Here's what Paul says. He says, now to the married, I command, Yet not I, but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. Now, Paul says, not I, but the Lord. Now, what does this mean when he says that there in verse 10? Now, now to the married, I command, yet not I, but the the Lord. What's he mean by that? Well, simply what Paul means is that Jesus spoke directly about this issue. Uh, Turn to Mark chapter 10. It's to the left there. And we'll see what Jesus had to say. Mark chapter 10. beginning in verse 2, says that the Pharisees came and they asked him, that is Jesus, uh, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife, testing him? And he answered and he said to them, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. And Jesus answered and said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. In the house, his disciples also asked him again about the same matter. And so he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, so the question that these Pharisees came to Jesus and asked him basically is, hey, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And here's, here's why they asked him. They said, well, be, you know, because Moses permitted a certificate of divorce. And so the Lord Jesus, he, he, re, he responds to that. Now, here's the deal. He's, when he asks them, what did Moses command you? He knows exactly what's on their heart. See, in, in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4, God did indeed say that if a man married a woman and found some in cleanness in her, that he should give her a writing of a bill of divorcement. And since that is a, a bit vague, Uh, what happened was that different rabbis made different assumptions concerning the text, and they interpreted it differently. Uh, the, The big interpretation was, what exactly does uncleanness mean? And so there were two basic schools of thought. One was from a guy, Rabbi Shammai, and he had the conservative viewpoint. Uh, his viewpoint was that uh, an uncleanness in your wife, you married this gal and you found that she was unclean, well, that would mean that you discovered that she wasn't a virgin on your wedding night, uh, in which case you could divorce her. A very narrow interpretation. Uh, but there was a Rabbi Hallel, and he had a very liberal viewpoint. Uh, he said that if a man had a bad wife, that it was his religious duty to divorce her. That's what uncleanness meant to, to him and his interpretation. If you, if you have a bad wife, it's your religious duty to divorce her. Now, here were some of the things that, that constituted a bad wife. Uh, if your wife didn't dress the way you liked, then that made her a bad wife, in, in Rabbi Hallel's opinion. Uh, if, your, if your wife was a brawling woman, That would constitute a bad wife. Now, what's the definition of uh, brawling? Here's what they interpreted. If you could hear her next door, she was a brawling woman, right? Some of you ladies are like, I guess I'm a brawling woman. So if they could hear you next door, that made you a bad wife. And so therefore, it was your husband's religious duty to divorce you. Uh, If your wife couldn't cook well, that made you a bad wife. Or uh, if you found another woman who you thought was cleaner, that made your wife, by comparison, a bad wife, right? So which one do you think was the more popular interpretation? Yeah, Rabbi Hallel. Guys were taking him to football games and buying him, you know, Lakers tickets, the whole bit. He was a popular guy. So naturally, this is the most popular viewpoint. But... They come to Jesus because really what they want to do is they want to pit Jesus against the people. It's a setup. They want to they see, you know, what, what's he going to do here. So what Jesus does, is, as he always does, he goes right to the root of the problem. And in verse 5, he says what the root of the problem is. He says that the, the problem is that your hearts are hardened. Interesting, that, that word there in, uh, in hardened, in verse five, when he says, because of the hardness of your heart, that word heart, hardness, it's the word sclerosis. And uh, this is the, the same word that we use that, you know, the, the, the mechanism of a heart attack. You, have, you, you get this sclerosis, this atherosclerosis in your coronary arteries, and, and your arteries are hardened, and that leads to a heart attack. And, and it's a perfect word, uh, because when you start thinking about it, me, you know, former paramedic, I think through all the implications, you know, there's, you talk to any cardiologist about, about your heart. You're like, okay, so what's it take to maintain a healthy heart, to maintain healthy coronary arteries? And, the, and, and everybody will tell you, well, look, you got risk factors. There's risk factors you can change. There's risk factors you can't change. And so, you know, you focus on the risk factors that you can change, right? And, and the three big ones are diet and exercise Uh, I know I said I wasn't going to use any bad words this service, but okay. So diet and exercise and stress. Those are the three risk factors that contribute to atherosclerosis, this hardening of the arteries. Your, your coronary arteries, they, all, they lay on the outside of your heart, right? And, and even though your heart's filled up with blood, it doesn't get its nourishment from the blood inside of it. No, it gets its nourishment, its oxygen from the coronary arteries that lay all along the outside of your heart. When you have a heart attack, it's one of these arteries that gets plaque buildup, gets hardened, and then all of a sudden you throw a clot and now that artery is plugged off. So the portion of your heart muscle that was going to be supplied with oxygenated blood now doesn't get its oxygenated blood, and a heart attack ensues. And so, you know, the the implication physically is, okay, I need to focus on these risk factors so that I don't have hardening of the arteries, I don't have atherosclerosis, so I don't get heart disease. And Jesus says the problem with your marriages is that you've got, Hardening of your heart that's taken place. Same risk factors, by the way, diet, exercise, and stress. You know, you think about, you know, the spiritual implications. That, you know, if if we're not feeding on the Word of God, if we're not exercising our faith, if we're not handling the stresses and the pressures of life in a godly way, rather handling them in a self-centered, selfish way, well, then the same hardness of the heart is the result. And so this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, look, Moses allowed you to have a certificate of of divorce because of the hardness of your heart. And by the way, when Moses allowed for a certificate of divorce, it wasn't really for the benefit of the guy that would put his wife away for a cleaner version somewhere else. You know what? You're ugly, dirty, unclean by comparison with this new model, so you're out. Well, his heart is hard. That's why he does that. And why, why Moses would allow for a certificate of divorce was because what happened was men were divorcing their wives. They were leaving their wives because they were, quote, unquote, unclean. And now the woman was, was hung out to dry, man. She was, she, had, she was a social piranha or pariah, rather. She was like, hey, you, you just you're, you're, you're out. You know, you, and, and damaged goods, so to speak. So by giving her a certificate of divorcement, what this did was it, it set the woman free. It, it sort of, it, it freed her up. It released her from an otherwise uh, blemish that her husband would have put on her. So really, when Moses allowed this, it wasn't so much for the man's benefit. It was for the woman's benefit, as Jesus points out, because the men had this hardening of their hearts. Now, the the Bible cites four occasions for ending the marriage. I just want to point this out right now at this point. Four occasions for ending of marriage. One is in the case of adultery. Jesus makes that clear in Matthew chapter 5. Another occasion for ending the marriage would be for hardness of heart. It's addressed here in Mark 10. Um, It's addressed in our text in 1 Corinthians 7. Another issue, another reason for ending a marriage uh, is abandonment. Uh, Paul's going to address this again in in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And then the fourth reason, of course, is death. Death is a pretty good reason for ending the marriage, right? So there's four reasons biblically for you to to end your marriage. Now, uh, a a couple of these issues, few of these issues uh, are opportunities for remarriage. If you're in a marriage relationship and your spouse is unfaithful, God, by His grace, gives you uh, the, the freedom to divorce your spouse, and you are free to remarry. Now, just because this is your freedom doesn't mean that this is God's will. God would that we would work through uh, any difference that we're going to have in our marriage relationship. We're going we're gonna to spend some time looking at this, but in Malachi chapter 2, it tells us there that God hates divorce. Uh, and, and so even in the case of, of infidelity, of, of adultery, God would, his desire would be that we could work through that and, and protect and preserve the marriage relationship. But in his grace, in his mercy, he allows some who go through that level of betrayal to be able to, to, to say, okay, you know what? I, 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 this is the end of our marriage. And they then have the freedom To remarry. In the issue of hardness of heart, this is is not one of those areas where, you know, you have the green light from God uh, to go and get remarried. I mean, he will say as a concession, look, okay, if you're going to get, if you're going to be separated, if you're going to be divorced um, because your heart is hard, well, then you don't have the freedom to get remarried. It'll also uh, talk about, you know, the issue of abandonment. And, and, and we'll get into that in just a little bit, but there are those cases where, you know, you, you're married to somebody, they've, they've forsaken you, they've abandoned you, God in His grace gives you the, the freedom in that instance to, to, to go and be remarried, and of course, the death of a spouse. If your spouse uh, has an untimely death, then God allows you in His grace and in His mercy for, for you to, to remarry so some of you ladies are like, oh, honey, don't wear the seatbelt today. It wrinkles your shirt, you know. Uh, no. <laughs> God sees your heart. All right. So, so Jesus here, he's talking about hardness of the heart. And, and interestingly, uh, he, he goes on and he says in verse 6, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female for this reason. Verse 7, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but they're one flesh. Now, Jesus here, he's, he's quoting from, from Genesis chapter 2. In fact, as long as we're looking, go over to the left, all the way back there at the beginning, Genesis chapter 2, very beginning of your Bible. And here's, here's the creation account. tells us here that in verse 18, the Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. I'll make him a helper comparable to him. Now, out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the air, and he brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the air, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. Here's the deal. God makes Adam, makes him just the way he wanted to make him. I mean, the, the Bible says when God made man, he said, it is good. You know, there's man made in the, in the image of God, uh, and God says it is good. Now, did something change? Because now he's saying it's not good. No, Adam was designed just the way God wanted him, but God always designed Adam, intending to, to give to him his spouse, to give to him a completion, as it were. It's not good that he should be alone. He's, he's part of the model, but there's, there's, a, there's a component that I made to go with him. And so, this is the idea here. Now, God knows this, but Adam doesn't know this. So, he puts him in a situation where he says, you know, go out, name the animals, and Adam's out there. He's like, Mr. and Mrs. Giraffe, Mr. and Mrs. Hippopotamus, Mr. Wait a minute, where's Mrs. Adam? They're, you know, they, they all got mates. I don't have a mate. God's like, I thought you'd never ask. I'm going to give you yours. Here comes your mate. So... uh, The Lord God, verse 21, caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs, and he closed up the flesh in its place, and then the rib, which the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones, and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. You see, really, the, the story here is God gave Adam the spec sheet on what a woman was going to be. He's like, how much is that going to cost? And God's like, that's going to cost an arm and a leg. He's like, well, how much do I get for a rib? <laughs> no, that's not how it went. No, <laughs> God, God says, all right, I'm going to cause a deep sleep to fall on you. He takes out. Now, what is this describing? The surgical procedure. He puts him under. He, take, he removes the rib. He creates Eve. Now, Pop quiz, what did God create Adam out of? Dirt, right? What did God create, you know, everything else out of? Nothing. He spoke it into existence, right? So we take these little two lessons, and what could have God created Eve out of? Dirt, nothing. I mean, he could have created it out of thin air. He didn't have to create her out of Adam's rib. Seems like a lot of trouble, right? No, see, there's an object lesson here. See, what God is showing is that in order to have a wife, gentlemen, it will require painful sacrifice on your part. See, a lot of people don't realize this, but, but marriage, yes, it's designed to, to give us this completion and this companionship, and it, and it reveals you know, God in, 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 our, in our union, in the husband and wife union. You know, the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. Uh, and Christ being the head of the church, the church is His bride. He is the bridegroom, the husband in the marriage. He is the bridegroom; the the wife is is his bride. And so there's this there's this all this typology there. But in addition to all of that, what happens is really marriage becomes a vehicle in many ways for the destruction of your flesh. No, it really is. See, marriage is this path through which God drives out the selfishness and self-centeredness of your life. Now, if you doubt that, you know, I got a, I've got an example that proves this, garage sales. No, no, here's the deal. See, I would never stop at a garage sale. I wouldn't stop at one to save my life. You know, maybe if they're giving out chicken wings and plasma TVs, I'd stop. You know, hey, cool. Now, my wife, she likes garage sales, so what do I do? I stop and I go to garage sales. There, I ain't getting nothing out of that. See, this is me dying to myself. Just a biblical proof right there. God creates marriage. See, he, he designs marriage so that it destroys our flesh, so that we, we become less self-centered, less self-focused. We become others-focused. See, it is this vehicle that's uniquely designed for you to die to yourself for the benefit of someone else. This is, in many ways, what marriage is like. Which, by the way, is why divorce is so prevalent. Because you learn, you realize in marriage, hey, I need to die to myself? Well, I don't want to die to myself. Uh, You know, the bumper sticker that says, be reasonable, do it my way, I wrote that puppy, man. That's, That's what I want my wife just to do. You know, she exists for me, right? No. You exist for one another. You exist for the other person's benefit. And so God takes this rib and Adam recognizes, wow, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This cost me something. Not only that, but he realizes, hey, we're one. And that's the other thing God wants him to realize. No, you're no longer two, you're one. And, and we don't get this so much in marriage, not so much as Adam did, but we get this in childbirth in the sense that, uh, you know, when my kid was born, I tripped out, man. I'm like, wow, this is part of me. You know, this is like, you know, this is like me. My, you know, my third grandchild is going to be due any day. And my wife and I were talking. We're just tripping on the idea. We're looking at pictures of our grandbabies. And we're like, they came from us. Had we not met and married, they, they wouldn't be. This is, It's just crazy to think that, you know, this happens. Now, in the same way, this is the idea. This is the get. This is the application here that God wants us to understand through Adam. Hey, look, you guys, you're no longer two. You're one. You are one flesh. And so he says in verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Verse 25, he concludes the thought and says, They were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. Now, I do a lot of marriage counseling. These two verses, Genesis 2.24 and 2.25, are really at the heart of most marital issues. See, because here's the idea. God says, a man shall leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two become one flesh. Now, I'm visual, and bear with me if you've heard this before, but but I always use a boat analogy to describe this, okay? Marriage is like a boat. When you're single, you're on the dock, and it's one big party, man. Everybody's welcome. All your friends are there. Your family's there. Everybody hangs out together. But, you know, you meet some gal. You decide you want to get married. Well, there at the end of the dock is this little boat. And I always envisioned, like, my son used to have this little sabbat, you know, the, the, the sailboat. that My wife and I got into that one day to, to tour around the lake behind our house. And there's, like, this much freeboard, you know, this is much of the boat sticking out of the, out of the water, I mean, there was not wind or wave. Man, we were going to be bailing on this thing. And that's a perfect picture of marriage, man. You get into this thing, and it's just the two of you. And there's a lot of things that are required. And this is a long illustration, so I'll keep it short. But basically, you get in the boat, you have to get in. A lot of people like the idea of marriage, but actually getting in, you know, <laughs> that's, that's another thing entirely. But you have to get in, you got to untie, you got to bring provisions for the journey. And the provisions that you bring are everything that God made you to be gentlemen and ladies everything that God's made you to be and it's a it's a total commitment it's like this it's like guys you have the food and ladies you have the water right and, and so you know you, you can't survive without both of you saying hey what I, what I have I freely share with you what you have you freely share with me this is the idea of marriage we get into this boat we get we set off and everybody every and I tell couples this in pre marriage counseling all the time everybody goes through the same experience. Oh, we'll get married. It'll be awesome. Let's go. Let's I die. We go out. This boat stinks. I hate this boat. It's crowded. It's, we're taking on water. I got a bale, the wind, the waves. I, I like that boat. I think I'd like to be in that boat. You know what? I really, I want to be back on the dock. Let's just go back to the dock. At this point, I can't stand you so much. I'll stink stinking go swimming. I just want out of the boat. And everybody goes through that. Everybody goes through that. And so what, what Genesis 2.24 says is, no, look, you leave father, mother, you, you leave them all on the dock, you get in the boat, and it says the two shall become one flesh, right? And, and you're united together. And basically what the idea is that you say to one another as husband and wife, come hell or high water, I'm not leaving you, I'll never leave you, and I'll never forsake you which brings tremendous security, it ought to. And the words ought to sound familiar because that's what the Lord says to us. He says, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. And this is the picture. This is the idea that in marriage, we make this commitment and we say, look, I'm in the boat. Come hell or high water, I'm never gonna leave you. I'm never gonna forsake you. I'm gonna fight it out. I'm gonna stay in this boat. I'm gonna make it work. And what that does is it brings such incredible strength to the marriage union that, well, the promise follows that in verse 25. They were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. Now, physical nakedness, yes. I mean, we're talking about the Garden of Eden, and yes, they were both naked, and, and yes, there's that picture, and of course, that's the case. I refer you to last week's message. You can listen to it online. All right, so that's part of it, but here's the other part of it. The other part of both being naked and unashamed is that I don't have to hide anything from you. I don't have to, to walk on eggshells around you. Why? Well, because I'm, I'm in the boat, man. I'll never leave you. I will never forsake you. Come hell or high water. Baby, it's you and me. We're going to make this thing work. And it's not going to be easy. We're taking on water. We got to bail right now. It's, it's crowded. It's uncomfortable. It's whatever it is. But I'm in it. If we go down, we're going down together. And your wife says that to you. And, and from that, you're, you have tremendous security. I can be bare, naked, open, nothing hidden. We're in it to win it. We're in it together. And it's a beautiful thing. And that's what God intends. And so Jesus, as, he, as he's referring to, to this, that, hey, look, divorce was never part of God's plan was never part of the option. It was always that thing that God had designed, that God's intention was that we would grow together as one and bring glory and honor to God. Now, back in First Corinthians chapter 7, verse 12, Paul continues. And he says this, But to the rest I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. Now he says, I not to the, not the Lord. What does this mean when he says that? Well, let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean, as some mistakenly interpret, that this is Paul saying, this is my opinion, and this isn't the word of God. That's not what Paul's saying. What Paul is saying is that Jesus didn't specifically say this. He's saying, I'm saying this. Jesus didn't say this when he was here, but, but I'm telling you this. Now, Paul's speaking under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And, and there are those that would say, well, Jesus didn't say it. Well, Jesus didn't say a lot of things. I mean, J- Jesus didn't say that you shouldn't be a, a pedophile either. doesn't mean that, that, oh, because he didn't say it, you can be, right? And so what Paul is just simply saying here is, look, Jesus didn't specifically say this while he was here. And why would he? Really, because think about it. In context, what these, this is speaking of when Paul says this, it's speaking of those who've converted to faith in Jesus Christ after his death, burial, and resurrection. It's talking about those who are living out a a, a life of faith in Jesus Christ who has died, buried, and rose again for the forgiveness of sin. So Jesus wouldn't have spoken on this. It's impractical. This is talking about us believers who now follow in faith looking to to Christ as our Lord and Savior. And so what Paul is saying here is is, uh, it it wasn't said by, by Jesus, but it certainly, most certainly, is the Word of God. And I just put up on the screen for you real quickly, 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17 says this, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so this indeed is the word of God. So when Paul says, I, not the Lord, say this, it just, again, simply means Jesus didn't say it. Nevertheless, it is the word of God. And so the word of God says, if you're married to an unbeliever and they're okay with you being a, a Christian, don't divorce them. Now here's why, verse 14. Paul says, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are Holy. Okay. What does this mean? There's a lot to unpack there. The key is this word sanctified that he uses several times. Now, if you see that word sanctified, maybe you're a note taker. Next to it, you might want to write this. To separate from profane things and clothe in righteousness. That's what this word sanctify means. It means to separate from profane, from profane things and to clothe in righteousness. Now, Let me tell you what this does not mean. This does not mean salvation, okay? This has to do with the benefits of godly association. It's not talking about the husband being saved through the believing wife, the unbelieving husband being saved through the the believing wife. It's talking about the benefits that are going to be attributed to him by association. I'll, I'll illustrate what I'm about to say this way. In, uh, in the early 90s, when I was working in the fire department, we got called out to a call where a couple of guys had been struck by lightning, Palm Desert. And uh, during the summer, man, the storms could blow in and they come from the, through, in from the, the, the Gulf of California there and they blow in and it gets intense, real intense lightning storms. And uh, first time I ever rolled out, it was because a palm tree was on fire. I'm like, that's a joke. They're like, no, lightning hits the palm trees, they catch on fire. I'm like, well, what do we do? They're like, you, you squirt water up in the air, and you drop it down on the top of this 100-foot palm tree. I'm like, I'm going to squirt water in a lightning storm. That's crazy. They're like, welcome to the fire department in Palm Desert. So I'm like, all right. So here, if, you know, here we are, and uh, these guys get struck by lightning. We roll out, and, and here's these, these two you know, landscape guys that had been out working, and they're both unconscious on the ground. And and so we begin working, and and physiologically, typically, what happens when you get struck by lightning is that you go into respiratory arrest. You stop breathing. Uh, And so, you know, fortunately, that wasn't the case with these guys. They were just unconscious, but they were both breathing. And so, you know, we were there and treated them, and they both ultimately survived. Now... People don't get struck by lightning all the time, so the radio station calls us. They want to interview us. This is kind of big news. They want to know, hey, you know, what happened here? So we're, we're explaining to the guy what happened, and, and really what had happened was they weren't hit directly because they're asking, well, how badly are they burned? I'm like, well, they're not burned. Well, they didn't understand that. I said, well, look, what you need to understand is there's this phenomenon called splash, and what happens is these guys were working, they're near this, this tree, and the tree got struck by lightning. And then what happens is the current splashes out, and, it, and these guys are, are, are impacted by the splash. And so it knocked them unconscious, but it didn't burn them, and they will ultimately survive, thank God. And, and in the same way, when Paul is talking about the, the unbelieving spouse is sanctified by the believing spouse, that's the picture I want you to have in mind. It's splash. So the, the lightning is the negative example of this. The believing spouse sanctifying the unbelieving believing spouse is the positive aspect on this. In other words, if you are saved and you're living out your faith in obedience to Christ, then what ought to happen is that your unbelieving spouse gets splashed with the love of Jesus. That's what should happen. And so it's your example that just pours out upon them. And, and so not only does Paul say, and this is the, the, the tricky part of this verse, not only does Paul say that the unbelieving spouse is sanctified, is, is splashed by the love of God, but he says also the children are holy. Now, some say that this means that children are saved by virtue of a believing parent. That's what some assert that this means. And, and here's what I would say about this. It's true that children are saved in general uh, prior to reaching an age of accountability. Um, If you read 2 Samuel in chapter 12, I think it's verse 23, um, there's an account there where where David's son dies, young son. And, uh, And David is, you know, there in mourning, but he says in his time of mourning, he can't return to me, but I will go to him. And if you read through the scriptures, especially the Psalms, what you see is that David fully had an expectation and a hope and a faith where he was going. He knew that he was going to be with the Lord. And, and, you know, you read Psalm 23, uh, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever is, is his hope. And so, so the idea there is that, hey, this child is saved. No, he didn't get to an age where, where he, through his own independent faith, secured salvation. No, he's just sort of in this age of innocence where he's covered by the grace and mercy of a loving God. That is true. But, but this verse is not a proof text, in my opinion, for the fact that, you know, because by virtue of the fact that one parent is saved and one parent is not, that this child has a secured uh, hope in heaven from that. Yes, he has a secured hope in heaven, but I don't think the mechanism comes through that. I think it comes through the grace and mercy of the loving God. So what does this mean? Because, you know, somebody would point out, they'd say, well, wait a minute. What is Paul also says, he says, uh, otherwise your children would be unclean. That's part of the same verse. So they're, they're saved, and otherwise they would be unclean. You know, what's, what's going on there? Well, the word that, that Paul uses here, it's the same word that he uses as an unbelieving spouse. It's the exact same derivative uh, word. So Paul says, the unbelieving husband sanctified by the wife. And then when he goes on and he says, otherwise, your children would be unclean. That's basically uh, uh, the opposite of sanctified. It would not be sanctified. He says, but now they are holy. But that word holy is the same word as sanctified used for the husband. You're like, okay, what? I don't get it. What are you saying? All right, here's the point. Stay with me. If you stay committed to the marriage, you're in, you're in a marriage with a non-believer, and you're thinking, I'm, I want to trade them in for a believer. I want to get divorced. I want to be done with them. And, and Paul, by the influence of the Holy Spirit, says, no, that's sin. Don't do that. If, they, they're, if they're willing to stay married to you, stay in the marriage. Work it out. Because they are going to be sanctified. They're going to be blessed by your faith. And your children are also going to be sanctified by your faith. Now, again, sanctified means separated from profane things, and clothed in righteousness. All right, hold that thought. Let me put some scriptures up on the board. We'll start with Job. Job says this. He says, I put on righteousness, and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. Okay? Next verse. The psalmist, Psalm 132, verse 9, says this. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. And and so you, you know, dads, the priest of the home, if you're clothed with righteousness, then the saints, your children, they shout for joy, man, because of your clothing and righteousness. Just a perfect picture of splash, man. There you go, there's that picture. Isaiah said this, Isaiah 61.10, he said, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels, right? These are all the, 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 the promises there of being clothed in righteousness, Right? So you stay committed to this marriage. It's beneficial for your kids because they're going to be sanctified. They're going to be separated from profane things. They're going to be clothed in righteousness that comes as a direct result of your faith. But if you divorce their dad, if you leave their mom, well then, here's what God says in Malachi chapter two. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce for it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. What's that? What's he saying? He says, look, you can honor God and enjoy the coverings of his righteousness over yourself and over your family and marriage. Or you can disobey God and you can cover your garment and your children's garments with violence by going through divorce. This is some hard stuff, but this is exactly what this is saying. And you say, no, you know, you don't understand. You know, I'm I'm married to this guy and the violence is in the marriage. I'm not talking about physical violence. We'll deal with that in a minute. But you say, you know what? It's just violent. We're fighting all the time. It's just a violent and volatile atmosphere. And so I I don't buy that argument. It's just going to be better if I leave them. It's just, it's just going to be so much easier, so much more peaceful if we get a divorce. And I will tell you, that's generally not true. I want to share with you some, some stuff from a book. It's called The Unexpected Legacy of Divorce. This is a non-Christian book which studied 131 families looking at the effects on children who came out of divorced homes. And what they did is they tracked these children's lives from childhood to adulthood in 131 families. And here's some of the things that they found. In general, overall, their, their, their umbrella finding was that divorce has an overwhelmingly negative impact on families and society. Duh. Uh, who, who couldn't tell that, right? Now, here's, here's some of their, their specific findings. That the emotional implications were, were profoundly bad for these children, for these families, due to a number of factors. The fights and wars between mom and dad. there were adverse emotional implications because there was a change in the living arrangements which put a strain on both the kids and on the parents. There was uh, emotional implications that were adverse because childcare imposed new stresses on the children. Their routines were, were altered. Their sleep patterns were altered. Their social pressures were altered. And so it had a profound negative impact on the kids. The, the, another emotional implication that was adverse was that the grandparents' roles changed. Nobody anticipated this. That the grandparents' roles added to the, the stress of the extended family because no longer could the grandparents be serving in the, in the traditional capacity. Now they had to take on more parental type of roles as some of the parenting duties would fall to them because mom and dad are now split up. And so this created an adverse uh, implication emotionally to the family. Moreover than that, what they found was that there was a fracture of the extended family relationships because of the divorce. People chose up sides. And so what happened is that it undermined the integrity of the family. and, And ultimately, the whole social environment, they concluded, changes. And the family becomes, in many instances, unstable because of divorce. And again, the big lie is, oh, it's going to be so much more peaceful. No, it's not. Additionally, what they found was that uh, a divorce has devastating financial implications to families that the income level goes down due to the increased cost. You've got to maintain two homes, you've got daycare, you've got other considerations that come into play. And, and basically, overall, the income almost never goes up in the case of divorce. It almost always goes down. And financial difficult almost always ensues with loss of credit and bankruptcy being predominantly increased in those who go through uh, divorces. Additionally, there were many coupling uh, or complicating variables for children as they grew into the adulthood. And this is part of the fascinating implications of divorce. What they found was that relationship fears in early adulthood for those that come out of divorce are very common. That, that the way that the, the children who live through divorce, when they become adults themselves, the way that they interact in their relationships is, is typically Profoundly altered in the sense that they carry fear of commitment, lack of trust, uh, there is typically an increase in promiscuity for those who go through uh, divorce and so overwhelmingly, the statistics are very bad and and again, in my opinion, this is almost certainly what Paul is referring to when he says in verse fourteen uh, the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the believing husband, the wife is sanctified, or the, the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. You see, there's an atmosphere, if you say, hey man, that really it's shorthanded, make your marriage work, man. If if they're willing to stay, that is always the best option. Work through it. That's the deal. Now, Paul goes on, he continues, verse 15, he says, But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases. But God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? What he says is this. He says, if you're married to a nonbeliever and they leave you, let them go. You're free. He said, Don't force the issue. They want to leave? Okay, you let them leave. Then you're free to remarry. But if they want to stay, you stay and you work on it. Now, again, I'm not talking about abusive situations. You know, there are those that come and they say, I'm involved in an abusive marriage. And I think the, the term is 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 itself abused. No pun intended. People tell me they've been abused, and I say, "Well, explain how." And well, you know, it comes down to, "Well, he talks mean to me." I'm like, "Come on, you know that I, that doesn't that doesn't categorize as abuse. No, abuse is he hurts me." And if you're in an abusive situation, here's, here's what I would submit to. Number one, I would just make it very clear. I'm not telling you, and nor is the Lord telling you, to stay in, a, in an abusive marriage. I would say you need to get out. You need to be protected. You need to be safe. And if you're in that situation, we have resources. We can help you. You contact us, and we will, we will make sure that you're taken care of. See, because here's the thing. What, what Paul says is... In verse 15, if the unbeliever departs, see that word departs? Here's what that word departs literally means it means separates himself. And I would submit to you that if you are married to somebody who is abusing you, they have separated themselves from you. In a, in a very real spiritual connection, they have separated themselves from you. They've certainly separated themselves from God's covering over your marriage. God, I mean, you have to think of God. He's a loving father. And, and I have two daughters that I gave away in marriage. If, any, if either of their husbands were abusive to them, do you think I, as a loving father, would say, well, you married him. You got to stay there. No, I, I'd be burying him in the desert is what I'd be doing. And no jury would convict me. I'll just tell you that right now. See, I, I'm going to see to it that my, that my little girl's taken care of. Right? And, and so this is the heart of our father. He's, he's like, okay, look, if, if you're married to a non-believer and they leave, you let them go. But man, if, if the person is going to stay and wants to work through it, man, you stay, you work through it. That's the idea. I'm going to put First Peter 3, 1 through 7 up on the screen. Are we set up to do that, by the way, guys? Huh? No? Okay. First um, Peter 3, 1 through 7. I guess I'll turn over there and read it for you. Um, you can turn there as well. First Peter uh, one through seven, uh, chapter three. God says this. He says, "Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they, without a word, may be won by the conduct." Of their wives, when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear, do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the incorruptible beauty of gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this matter, in manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. Verse 7, you guys aren't left out. Husbands, likewise, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel. Now, if she is the weaker vessel, what does that make you? Weak. Doesn't make you strong. She's weaker, right? That means you're weak. She's weaker, so don't get all puffed up. You're weak. Your wife is weaker. You need to give honor to her is what it says. And as being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers may not be hindered. Here's the idea. When Paul says, hey, verse, verse 16, how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband or, uh, or how do you know, O husband, whether or not you will save your wife? The idea is this. What Paul's saying is, look, if you stay in that marriage and if you work through it and if you do your level best to, to, to just bring glory and honor to God and you do your best to live out your Christian faith, you don't know, they could change. They could see your life, your faith in Christ, and they could say, you know what, I want what you've got. And I had hoped we'd be able to get through the whole chapter. I'm looking at the clock. We're going to have to stop right there. Um, we'll pick it up next week uh, good news is I got my studying done for next week thank you Lord um, we're, we're just going to stop there but, but I guess I'll close with this story and we'll partake of communion um, you know Gail Irwin he's a pastor he tells a story about one of the first churches where he pastored and, uh, and there was a guy in the church who was, who was horrible he was horrible to his wife he was horrible to everybody else absolutely not saved He'd come every week to church with his wife, but everybody knew he wasn't a Christian. He had no interest in being a Christian. And so Gail takes over this church. He's there, and he's he's just beginning in the the ministry. And one day, he preaches his heart out, and this guy comes forward, and he gives his life to Christ. And so Gail has a chance to, you know, minister to him. And afterwards, he's feeling, you know, a little bit puffed up about himself, a little good about himself. He said, hey, you know, you mind if I ask you what I say that, uh, you know, got through to you? The guy goes, I've been married to a saint for 30 years. And quite frankly, young man, I just couldn't wait for you to shut up so I could come up and give my life <laughs> to her Lord and her Savior. And I would just encourage you that, that if you're in a situation right now that, you know, it's your faith and, and your spouse isn't saved, don't give up. Pray for them. You live out your faith, but don't leave them. And my final plea if you're here today and you're thinking about divorce, you're thinking it's an option for you, can I beg you to reconsider? It's a train wreck. You think, you know what? You, you have a lie that says, hey, you'll be free from all of the." You're never going to be free. That person's going to be in, the rest, in your life, the rest of your life, whether you like it or not. There's birthdays, there's holidays, there's Christmases, there's graduations. There's, they will be in your life forever. And can I just say, Don't do it. And if you're here, maybe you've been through a divorce, a message like this, very convicting. And here's what I would say to you, if that's you in this situation. I would say that our God is a loving and a merciful and a forgiving God. The Bible says if we confess our sins to God, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so if you're a person who in your past and you're now here and, and the Lord would look at you and you say, wow, look at Jesus' words there and I'm, I'm guilty, I was that person, I left my spouse, Is that, does that make me an adulterer? I would say this, there was a woman who was found to be in adultery and they brought her to the Lord. And they were going to stone this woman. And Jesus bent down and he began writing in the sand. And we don't know what he wrote in the sand, but we know that one by one, from the oldest to the youngest, her accusers dropped their stones and walked away. And leaving just Jesus and this woman. And he said to her, Woman, where are your accusers? She said, they've all gone. And he said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. So I would say to you, if you're here and you're carrying guilt of of sinful decisions that you've made in your past, confess those to the Lord. Know that he's faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And I would say now, do your level best to walk in obedience to the Lord and bring him glory and honor with your life. Amen. Father, we thank you for this time in your word. And we thank you now that we can partake of communion remembering your grace and your mercy and your abundant pardon that's available to us by faith in Jesus Christ. We know this bread represents your body broken for our sins and the juice represents your blood shed on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. And you say that we are to do this in remembrance of you. And so, Lord, we gather together here on the first day of the week to remember what you have done for us, to confess, Lord, that we're sinners and we need your grace, we need your forgiveness, we need your mercy. And Lord, to confess to you that you are Lord and we want to obey you and we want to walk in newness of life and we want to walk in obedience. So Lord, by your grace, by your mercy, have mercy on us. We pray this together in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. This is the time of the service where we respond to God. We have given to the Lord our praises and worship and we've received from the Lord through the teaching of His Word. This is now our time to respond. We worship the Lord in several songs now, three songs together. As we worship the Lord, we respond by partaking of communion. There's two communion tables in front, two in the back. The way we do it here is you make your way to the table that's closest to you. You take the communion elements back to the chair where you're sitting and now you do business with God as we worship over these next three songs. You take a walk with the message. Lord, how does this apply to me? What would you have me to do to put feet on my faith? And when you're ready individually, you partake of communion. We respond to the Lord in our tithes and offerings. We don't pass a basket. There's gift boxes in the back. How you give is between you and the Lord. That's another way that we respond to the Lord. As I said, most importantly, the way that we respond, uh, most importantly, is to put feet on our faith and to apply the things that God has shown us, that we're doers of the word and not hearers only. Amen. Let's respond to the Lord together.